Introducing the amazing iPhone XS you'll love on T-Mobile, the most loved in wireless. It's the perfect way to stay connected to those you heart most. Fall in love with iPhone XS on T-Mobile. And right now, trade in an eligible iPhone and you'll save $300. Visit a store or call 1-800-T-MOBILE. If you cancel service, remaining balance is due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. $279.99 down plus $30 per month times 24. Full price $999.99. 0% APR for well-qualified buyers plus tax on full price. Allow eight weeks for rebate. That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. No tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. Fairly alarmed here. <laughs> Welcome to MOTN Reviews. That is Masters of the Nerdiverse Reviews, where we take some of... S- the Nerdiverse's shiniest cinematic supernovas, and we look at some that are not so brightly lit. You can always find this penitentiary of a podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, SoundCloud, YouTube, iHeartRadio, and Google Play. I am, of course, your host, Mike G, and I am extremely excited to welcome to our show King of Myths' own Brent. How's it going, sir? It's going pretty well. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, sir. Very, very good to have you on. Now, the movie in question, for those who have actually read the uh, title of this episode, have an idea of what we're maybe talking about for this show, um, which is Stephen King written, Frank Darabont directed The Green Mile. Spooky. Um... What would you say is your history with this film? Did you read the books? Is this something um, I've only um, had passing knowledge of the book. Same here. Like I know it exists. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I do. It's, it's like one of those things where when I was a kid, I would read a lot of Stephen King. I read uh, it when I was a child, and then I graduated to The Stand, and then I read nightmares and dreamscapes but you know the the green mile was a little too mature for me when i was a kid and by the time i got out of my stephen king phase i just never had a chance to read it but you know i did see the movie though uh what is your history with the movie how many times have you seen it (laughs) a million yes (laughs) i i can't probably can't count the number of times i've seen the movie i've seen it so many times where i can just play the whole thing in my head it's one of those uh, that's awesome absolutely Absolutely. So with this film, I, I just I literally just started watching it again before we recorded uh, just to re-familiarize myself with kind of the tone of the movie. And it's and I'm not sure how you feel about it, but to me, it feels like it's almost two sides of a coin. You know what I mean? Where it's almost fantasy, but it's so it's steeped in realism. And this the coin is the people, most, you know, sorry, go, on. go for it. I was gonna say this is one of the most like un Stephen King Stephen King things. It's like up there with a Shawshank Redemption. Yes. But if you did not know the the history of this movie, you would never assume this had anything to do with the man. No, and it's this whole film, even down to its uh actors, it's very kind of like not suited for who they were. Like even like Tom Hanks as the titch- as the main character, you know, he's a comedian, you know, that's how he started. But he plays this role so amazingly straight. 
that it kind of harkens back to Stephen King being more of a horror writer, a suspense writer, to writing this soulful, almost whimsical story about it's, the impossible. The thing about um, Green Mile is like it's an adult version of kind of a C.S. Lewis thing. It's very like Christian overtones, yes. very like parallel journey of Jesus thing with John Coffey. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it's kind of, it kind of keeps you, it throws you for a loop. It, like you said, it sometimes it feels like it was directed by Steven Spielberg. And sometimes it's like directed by like David Cronenberg. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's the, it, the film constantly keeps you, keeps flip flopping about how you feel inside. You know what I mean? It's like, sometimes you feel like excited when you're watching it. And certain times you feel terrified, you feel like terrified or to kind of disgusted because it keeps because the characters this is more of like an ensemble kind of cast i would say and i forgot how many stars are in this movie oh yeah this movie has a wow this list of amazing actors and you know some movies are like okay this would have been better if they changed this person or this person but no mm-hmm. i don't think anyone would ever change anybody and this list of people as these actors and the, who they played. I could not imagine anyone else playing John Coffey besides Michael Clark Duncan. Yes. Or, um, or Tom Hanks, for that matter. Uh, or I didn't know that Sam Rockwell was in this movie. Yeah, I'm like there's just so many big people in this movie and the chemistry between all of them. Like this is the first time Tom Hanks and Michael Clark Duncan ever were in a movie together. And yes. this them and screen, like they would have this history of each other. You would assume just how comfortable they are. Yes. And that's one thing about this film that I love it, that it's not, it, it's effortless. It's like breathing in fresh air. You know what I mean? Like everybody is just so natural in their roles even the despicable characters in this film are naturally despicable. It's like nothing feels forced, especially the relationship between the Tom, uh, Tom Hanks and Michael Clark, Clark Duncan's characters in this movie. Uh, and it just, it, it gives a air of realism to, like you said, this Lewis Carroll type uh, fantasy, really. Cause I was just sitting here thinking, one of the questions I want to ask you is how would you classify this movie? I would never say it's a horror. I would never classify as that. I would classify it as like a non-fictional light fantasy. Yes. Because it's it's not a drama. No, (laughs) it's not a drama, but it does use drama elements. I don't know if it's like the screenwriter or the director or whatever Stephen King put in the book, but like the way it pirouettes and twists the tone of the story because you have mm-hmm. that like um beginning of the movie where you have john coffee holding these dead girls in his arms and mm-hmm. he's covered in blood yes and then you have the, and... the little moments in the uh cells that totally breaks up this serious mood when you have like the um going through the process of killing people and you have the janitor making it those jokes and freaking mm-hmm. that he's dying and just it does so good changing the tone of the story each and every moment when it needs to and you it's, don't expect it absolutely and it just feels like there's a bunch of mini movies inside this movie you know what i mean like you were saying like the dichotomy from john coffee holding the twin girls and that scene of the uh i hate to say lynch a lynching squad 
running through the, the, the amber waves of grain to find him in this poster shot of him screaming at the top of his lungs. But then you transition to Mr. Jangles, you know, mm-hmm. what I mean? <laughs> you know, doing his uh, effects trick and it just lightens you up. Like this film keeps you on your toes, like emotionally, you know, not even with any kind of intense action scenes or anything visually uh, stimulating. It's all, it's all like feeling it's, it's a very, very, I would say emotionally jarring movie, but in the best way possible. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And then I feel like it yeah. does something that every movie tries to invoke, but very few do. And that's instant investi- investigation to a character. You're instantly yes. invested into Tom Hanks character. Uh, I can't remember his character's name in this movie. Fall? Yes. Fall, I think. Yeah. yeah. You're instantly invested into the his two buddy guards, like the really burly one mm-hmm. that's the tough, silent one, but he's got a heart of gold. And then the yes. um more quiet one that's the more logical of the two. Yes. And um there's the uh older gentleman who's kind of he's kind of simple, but he's but he's very to the point. And he's not very he's much like, he... in the movie. Yeah, he's like, he pissed on my shoe. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, he yeah. just acknowledges it. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay. Yeah, like, you know? he, I love when he's on the screen, but he's like more in the background. Like, he's never much yeah. in the face. Right. He's, he, he plays his, um, he plays his part very well to where he rounds out that trio. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And like you were mentioning with Paul, you're automatically invested in him. And I forgot about the beginning, beginning of this movie where it takes place in, "Quote unquote modern times," where yeah. it starts off at the resting home. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? For a second, I was like, I for, I completely forgot this was part of the movie. I was like, Am I watching the Green Mile? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, the way it opens is so is weird that, because then again, yeah. that little pirouette, like, "Hey, you have these old people." It's okay. Let me tell you my story, and then it opens yes. up with John Coffee holding these dead baby girls <laughs> in his arms. You're like, yeah. "Okay, what what did I just get into?" Yeah, it's it's really a punch to the gut, you know, and you know they're watching like they're watching like Maury Povich or something like that. They're watching uh, Jerry Springer, and then it codes opens to uh, Paul, and you you immediately start feeling for him because at the time he was like, I had the worst uh, bladder infection in my entire life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you see him struggling through that throughout the first half of the film. And it automatically makes you feel for him, especially when you start to realize that he's a legit good man. Yeah. And, you know what I mean? Like, and the thing about this movie is it loves to get that carpet underneath you and then just fling it. Yeah. Because it, it introduces other factors that throw you off kilter again, like the, like Percy, the um, over, exci- I would say the overexcited uh, new guard, I would say, who kind of throws a monkey wrench in their harmonious kind of, like you said, almost religious approach to being the men who get to see men, who, 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 who ferry men to death. Yeah, they're the keepers. They almost feel like, exactly. It, it doesn't feel like a prison. The only time it feels like a prison is to, like at the beginning of the film where they're literally doing the chain gang and you see them during the great depression, you know, working the fields, like the rest, the rest of the general population. But once you're on the green mile, it almost feels like, a monastery does that make does that make sense it feels it doesn't feel like like everyone has their role and everybody's very 
the respectful. Very it's very a respectful place. They don't have any yeah. issues with the people on there. They almost have like a bond, especially with very certain cellmates. Like you know the whole thing with Mister Jangles and how they were going to say, "Yeah, we'll take care of your mouse. He's going to go to Mouse Land. He's going to have a very good mm-hmm. life." And then Percy just destroys that. And I, and this would bring up to my yeah. topic I'm bring up with this movie. This movie knows how yeah. to play its viewer. It knows how to invoke things from you. And it goes, oh, you remember John Coffey yeah. and how he showed him with these girls? You thought you were going to hate him. No, he's a big teddy bear. Let us show you Percy. Yeah. And you think, I'll never hate anyone more than Percy. I'll never want to choke anyone more than Percy. And then you get Wild mm-hmm. Bill. Exactly. And that's the thing. It keeps you off kilter with this harmonious place, this almost, it's almost like the river sticks, mm-hmm. the green mile is, but you keep introducing bad person, let's say um, bad influence, then worse influence. You know what I mean? It, and it constantly keeps you off your, keeps you off your balance. Percy was the beginning of that as the troublemaker slash uh, entitled rich kid mm-hmm. who's doing this for whatever sadistic kicks that he has. And then you're introduced, which is one of my favorite movie character introductions in cinema, is the introduction of Wild Bill, played by Sam Rockwell, who, if this man does not win an Oscar by the end of his career, I'm just going to throw a flaming bow and arrow, you know, into, like, Universal. Like, he's just too good. He's too good of an actor. I think... Personally, the introduction of John Coffey oh, overshadows yeah. the introduction of Wild Bill because it's this zoomed out. You see this truck come in, the bottom almost scraping the ground. You're like, what's in there? Like a couple of dog, yeah. like a couple of like, like horses or something. And then you see like four or five guards come out, and this is mm-hmm. mountain. Of you know, a man. and it kind and it sets you up. Like if unfortunately nowadays everybody knows the gag, right? Everybody knows that you know. John Coffey is mm-hmm. a mountain with a heart of gold, you know, but for those who saw this for the first time, probably had no real inkling to the level of perf- almost kind of weird perfection that John Coffey represents a simple perfection, you know, whereas Wild Bill, it's mm-hmm. levels of his character development, you know, first he's, he's playing <laughs> that he, you don't know this at the time, but he's playing that he's so doped up that he's just gone. He's not blinking. He's completely, kind of uh active comatose but then the more you see him on screen the more he starts to peel back his intention to the point where he does do where he pretty much jumps the entire guard group by himself chained you know what i mean it's just this is one of those i love the development it was almost like a stage play his introduction was but yeah john coffee's intro carries weight because it's a metaphor for the whole film like don't judge like you're judging someone off their looks and not the content of the character funny enough you know what i mean absolutely so there's a lot of wrinkles in this film that just kind of that give it its personality uh one that comes to mind is when um paul is starting to get second thoughts about uh john coffee's actual guilt um if he's actually guilty and he visits Gary Sinise at his house mm-hmm. and Gary Sinise tells him the story about the dog and his son. And it's just this tone breaker. You know what I mean? Where at this point, the film has been kind of light in not necessarily light, but it's been kind of by the numbers. They show you the process of how a man dies. Like you, like you mentioned earlier, um, uh, Mr. Jangles and all that fun stuff. 
But when he gets to Gary Sinise's house, it kind of reminds you of the time that this is taking place in, in the mind state of your average person back then. We're not your average person, but you know what I mean, of 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 the, the local mm-hmm. folk, unfortunately. And it just it just kind of just brings you back down to the severity of the situation. Like, this is how they feel. Like, you know, a dog, you know, like he's mentioned, you can, a dog can be nice to you, love you for years, but one day it just may snap. And that was their idea of how uh, African-Americans were. That he, that's that's pretty much what he laid down and showed showed mm-hmm. his son who had his eye taken by by a dog. He was like, "You can't let him out of your sight once, or let your guard down once, because that's going it's going to happen. It's a matter of time." And it didn't seem to really affect Paul at all. <laughs> Paul's just like whatever, <laughs> like uh, like he it didn't change his way that he treated John after that. In fact, it endeared him more to John because the next scene he brought him some cornbread for, for his wife. You know what I mean? Which mm-hmm. opened John up more. And uh, and the uh, the the French inmate, who the, who uh... yeah, it also kind of seemed the fact that Paul yes. is a good person. Like you've been shown that he's a very responsible man who makes hmm. sure that he gets his job done. But you also see in depth that he is a man that has deep morals and that he will not let the times or what people think is right decide what Absolutely. he thinks is right and it's really just a showcase of paul's metal you know what i mean those scenes just ju- those scenes set together you know what i mean it's it's a, it's a hard cut to him mm-hmm. saying hey john my wife made you some uh um cornbread <laughs> to thank you for helping me out wink wink and just one scene that i, I remember that really caught my mind was the scene of um percy kind of in the mirror grooming himself but then you see the picture of the mouse grooming itself and it's like this weird metaphor you know it's a beautifully (laughs) done shot and that's when percy loses it and tries to kill the mouse but he's definitely thwarted and uh, taught taught a lesson which he never learns percy never quite learns his lesson Mm -mm. and that's just i guess that's that's a moral all into itself now do you want us Talk a little bit about the cinematography of this movie and just how artfully and masterfully uh, it's done. Have you ever, are you are you familiar with Stanley Kubrick films? You know what I mean, like Barry Lyndon, uh, um, Two Thousand One Space Odyssey, bits. The Shining. Yeah. Oh this yeah, movie yeah, yeah. Kind uh, of rivals that cinema, cinematography. Just on like like you mentioned the scene where where John Coffey is with the two girls. You know what I mean? It's it's shot perfectly. He's dead center of the shot. It's like a painting almost with the backdrop of the woods and people closing in on him. It just, it's, it's horrifyingly beautiful in a weird way. If that makes any sense, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's one of those things where you can take these key frames of the movie and putting these side by side yes. will kind of tell the story because you'll have the thing with John Coffey Coffee coming off the thing, the four men leading him mm-hmm. down the the hall. You can like slide these side by side and go, yes. this is the story. You, you can take a good probably 10 shots from this film and pretty much spell it out. Not even that five shots you know, because they're just so iconic and so well placed. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, the shot of him healing uh, the warden's wife. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's mind blowing. 
Actually, if you'd like to talk a little bit about the book there, mm-hmm. that's actually something I do know. The thing with the warden's wife oh. is a bit different. Like, she just goes ballistic on him, calls him all sorts of things. It's, just, it's a very invoking and powerful scene in the book. And I feel like they do still come mm-hmm. across that in the movie. It's just a little bit more oomph to it in the book. But I literally like how well this movie stuck to the book. And from people I've talked to who read it, like, it's like 90 to 80 yeah. percent there and i think that's the biggest challenge for adapting uh, a book that's the toughest part because you it's like you know, uh, there's not enough there's not enough film to get it exactly right but i think most authors are happy if you can get the spirit of the book but very rarely do you get both you know where they capture the spirit of what king was trying to uh depict but they also have so many shots they get it just right that it's one of those few films that are praised for its for its accuracy to the to the novel you know what i mean and that's like you said a very rare thing to capture especially now where hollywood is just cutting all the corners um i did want to ask you a question though do you believe Hmm. that john's powers were actually real or were they hyperbole by paul in his later years I believe they were real because you have the proof of how old Paul is. Like you, I think he actually shows a scene with his wife, a uh, gravestone or something or something of that nature. Like he gives solid proof of how mm-hmm. old he is. I can't remember exactly that proof is my memory is blanking, but he's like, yeah, this is how right. old yeah. I am. And people just don't live that. Like, old. Think about it. Like they were watching Jerry Springer on a color TV and he was, thir- he may have been 30, 40 years old in the Great Depression, which was what, 1920s? Mm-hmm. Nin- 19, 1910s? Mm-hmm. Like 1925. Around there, right? Around there. So he had to be pushing, mm-hmm. what, mm-hmm. <laughs> quick math, like, you know, 90, 100. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But, um, yeah, he's around like 110, I believe, is what he said. He's taking giant long walks into the forests, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Every day, you know what I mean? So, and he's as yeah. sharp as attack too. Like his mind's completely he remembers the solid. song and starts crying. You know what I mean? Like he's completely mm-hmm. there. The oldest man probably at that resting home. So you could say that um, John uh, gave him kind of the the Midas, the Midas touch, as it were, a little bit. So I think there that is actually very good proof to um, to the validity of the miracles. I, w- I want to call them. Um, regarding john coffee now is there anything before we get to the actual end of the story that you wanted to cover in regards to kind of where we are here i would say i would like to talk about one of the first instance of this like movie actually being a stephen king influence there is one specific piece of this story that will tell Mm -hmm. you this is king and that's when coffee uses his powers and he heals paul and he expels these like locust like things and that moment makes you go okay this is Mm -hmm. how it's here's another moment i want to talk about actually too that kind of tells that kind of reminds you who the the author is but yeah it makes me think that at first i was thinking is john coffee more like a sin eater you ever heard that expression before where he kind of takes on the ailments of others and dispels it through himself but 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, Sin Eater. So I was thinking, like, maybe that's the case, but he doesn't really carry the pain with him. He kind of, he immediately expels it, kind of like with the resurrection of Mr. Jangles, you know. But then again, when uh, the Frenchman got, you know, that's the scene I wanted to talk about, how dark that was in the movie. When he's going through mm, his electrocution, yeah. John is feeling it the entire time. Which makes me think that maybe he's more of an empathic healer, if that makes any sense to you. Kind of like, yeah, where he feels the mm-hmm. pain. Like someone touches him, he can kind of read their entire kind of history. You know what I mean? Like, or read their intentions rather. I wouldn't say necessarily. Yeah, that's was that was shown with like the whole Wild Bill scene when he touched exactly. Wild Bill. He just, you're a bad man. You know what I mean? He, I mean, when he touched uh, mm-hmm. Paul, he had no adverse reaction. You know what I mean? Because that initial mm-hmm. handshake, he probably got all he needed to know from Paul mm-hmm. to know, oh, okay, he's okay. I see he's in pain. I'm going to help mm-hmm. him, which is the scene where Paul literally is on the ground, just paralyzed by his pain. And John is constantly the entire day kind of saying, hey, come over here. He's like, not right now. <laughs> he's like, I need, no, I need to talk to you. But um, the scene that reminds me that this is a Stephen King film is the electrocution scene where Percy kind of does the worst thing humanly possible and doesn't give this guy the right send off by not soaking the sponge Mm -hmm. before execution, which turns him into like a heavy metal album cover. You know what I mean? It just, it's the, yeah. I'd also like to tie in here that with the topic we covered earlier, how Percy is a perversion of everything that's going on and before and how he basically twists and, almost brings it to like the polar opposite of how it was before and this scene is kind of the crescendo Mm -hmm. of that percy lays lays seeds of of just the work the wrong way to do it like you said he is kind of the the poster child for uh pervert like you said a perversion of the purity that they tend that they hold this station with such regard you know what i mean they're they're extremely nice to their patrons even when wild bill spits in paul's face he's like okay you get one just let you know the next one will cost you you know what i mean they're, they're so patient with everyone they're so respectful but then you have percy who's very much the opposite you know what i mean he's disrespectful to his own team he's constantly berating and physically abusing the other inmates you know what i mean because he has a he has a higher than thou no one can touch me because of who I know kind of mentality, which I'm sure ran rapid around that time and honestly runs rapid nowadays. But um, yeah. And that electrocution scene, like you said, is the nail on the head and kind of the climax. I would say, would you say that's the climax of the film? No, no. The climax of the film is the death of yeah, coffee. That's definitely the, I would say, but this is kind of like, that's what makes this film so crazy because I want to give it a higher regard because it was so jarring. Like you could just hear people describe the smell of the room and he literally just burst into blue flames, you know, and tears into charred Mm -hmm. ash in his chair. And not before nor after do you see such acts of, of horrific body horror in the film. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And then uh, besides the locust, this goes, Hey, 
Remember who the title author of this yeah. is? Yeah. Here, Here you, you go. go. <laughs> Don't sleep. <laughs> Stephen King will find ways to freak you out. Please, please understand. You know what I mean? And uh, that scene stuck with me when I first saw it, kind of when I was younger. I was like, wow, like, that's all it takes, huh? And it makes sense. You know, it makes it makes absolute sense. And it also kind of seems like Green Mile is a weird movie because in most movies you have a clear antagonist or a person who is going against your protagonist. In Green Mile, you never get a 100% hey, this is the protagonist. You have a POV person being Paul, mm-hmm. but you also are kind of like split between Paul, John Coffey, the his two real good mm-hmm. buddies, and the others on the mile. You never get a hundred percent. This is the person that you need to think of as the hero of the movie. Exactly. There's, like you said, there's no. They're villains, mind you. There's antagonists towards. I can't even say that because the this is really a story of John Coffey of his stay at the Green Mile, and there are characters that are kind mm-hmm. of sprinkled around it. May they be malevolent or benevolent? Uh, benevolent. I can't. Oh, my tongue. 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 What's that? It's a very much a um, full cast crew. Everyone has to be in their part. Mm-hmm. It's a very much ensemble deal. Everyone has to be there for this to make sense. And you don't really have a overall antagonist. You have these people who kind of stand in the way and represent the forces of evil in this world. That coffee kind of is there to combat. Right. He's kind of the... Like you said, as for the spirit, the uh, religious allegory, he's the unspo- he's the unspotted lamb for that needs mm-hmm. to be uh, that needs to be sacrificed for the greater good of man, right? <laughs> and no matter, yeah. And then you get that emotional depth where he's like, "I'm tired, boss. Yeah, put me down. Put me boss. down. I'm so tired. You know what I mean? And it just hits you right in the gut because you because you know, like an innocent man is frying and an innocent man is dying, but he's lives. I guess he he's lived he lives his life to the to the best ability that he could given his station, and he kind of fulfilled his destiny. Well, also like hearing him talk, like when he's talking about like the evil intentions of the world, like it's like glass being put into your eyes. Just these evil thoughts in this world is just so much hurt. Mm-hmm. While people being angry at each other that's for no super reason. Rough, man, it's that's one part I didn't get to when I from my rewatching, but I just kind of vaguely remember. Um, like his kind of his final piece, you know what I mean? Like him having a moment to really act. <laughs> you know, Michael Clark Duncan was has been quite very, um, very um, tight spoken through the whole film, kind of having moments here and there. That smells like cornbread. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'm tired. He just kind of turns over and goes to sleep. But um... but then again, the movie just. Wets and just grabs you and goes, ha And it shows you John Coffey having mm-hmm. his last request watching this movie and this, this him watching this musical and having a good time and this seeing this pure giant man having this like si- situation that he would never be able to experience yes. before where he's and at peace. It's like you said, it just it just shifts. It, sh- it, it shifts your the tone of how you're feeling to pure joy as you see him having a pure joy moment and the guards just relishing in his joy. You know what I mean? As he's just having a ball watching top hat, you know what I mean? (laughs) Until his actual uh, execution. 
And then that that scene directly makes the punch, which would have been like a punch to the gut, into a haymaker that knocks you out because he hums and sings that song while they're placing the hood and the the metal on his head, and he go place the hood and like, no, boss, please don't do That's that. That's rough. Man. I'm afraid like, of the dark. Uh, it reminds me of Iron. And then you just get that clean yeah, just strike I'm, to I'm your jaw. Like, I'm, I'm mostly checked out. <laughs> and that's why you understand. And it takes you all the way back to the beginning of the movie and understand the weight that that song holds still on Paul to this day. You know what I mean? Like, how do you, how would you forget that ever? Mm-hmm. That if, if you were in Paul's shoes, you know what I mean? That would be burned into your psyche forever, right? Like, there's no way. There's absolutely no way. Mm-hmm. Oh, we, and then, like, going back to my yes. allegory of this being a religious t- tones, that same setting where he's talking to Coffee about his last wishes, you go, mm-hmm. "Do you want me to let you out? Do you want me to let you run? Do you, we can get you out of here. You can, you can be free." And he's like, "Why would you do something so foolish? Because when I die, I don't want to stand in front of God the Father and go, I killed the perfect creation wow. that you put on this planet wow. for us.' Talk about." Uh... Oh, that's just heavy. <laughs> I mean, like, oh, that you saying that just kind of knocked the wind out of me a little bit. Just that that idea of having that kind of weight on on your chest to say, I, I don't want to be the one, you know, <laughs> like I don't I don't want to be the one that that uh, mm-hmm. that uses the spear of Longinus and, and deals the killing blow to such a to such a put uh, perfect being. I would say. A pu- not maybe maybe not perfect, but pure. Just a pure being that John Coffee represents. And Paul's like, I just can't do it. <laughs> like I will just, I will risk it all. But then he appeals. Then he appeals to Paul because Paul is a good man, mm-hmm. and he's like, "Please, I'm boss, I'm tired." Oh man! Then, of course, the execution goes off without a hitch. Uh, Percy is put into a a. Like not a necessarily correctional facility, but he was put into like an institution, wasn't he? Oh, he was driven insane because of the uh, final act of coffee when he um, had that evilness inside him from Wild mm-hmm. Bill, and he put inside Percy, and he shot Wild wow, we... Bill. Again, I don't know, like if that was coffee's attention or if it's just how that stuff works that there mm-hmm. i don't know i never read it again never read the book so i don't know if that's explained more in the book or what that stuff actually and is if i remember correctly when he did when when wild bill touched coffee he never expelled whatever he pulled from him so it had to go somewhere he was keeping it in mm, he, he was ne- keeping he it expel in it. Mm-hmm. and maybe in there are moments in this film where john does show some levels of precognition you know what I mean? Especially when he's talking about the lady in the wheelchair, when he's looking up at the stars, or when he's telling him to be careful in the introduction of mm-hmm. Wild Bill. So he could have already had, it, it may have been an ulterior motive for John to, this is the only way that Percy's going to get his comeuppance. You know what I mean? Or a, t- a tune for his sins, especially towards uh, the, the the French inmate that he pretty much completely uh, yeah. unnecessarily tortured tortured to death pretty much you know so i don't i i hate to say if it was john's intention because that kind of puts a blemish on his perfect spirit but maybe which is something like well i have to expel this anyway 
has to go somewhere. It's not necessarily an illness. It's more of an intent. And maybe intent works different than illness. You know what I mean? Yeah, I. it's really hard to say what this stuff is because it's never given a name. It's never talked about. Maybe it's just like yes. corruption incarnate would be a good of, way to describe it. It dissipates into the air like dandelion spores. Like It's not necessarily mm-hmm. like, like you were mentioning earlier, it being like locusts or flies or anything. It comes out like that. But once it starts to kind of dissipate, it almost becomes like ash. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It kind of... But mm-hmm. with Wild Bill... Yeah. It didn't work that way. Maybe because it was a different kind of corruption. It was a, or how intense it was because he was a truly yeah, he was evil a wild dog. Man. You know what I mean? He just had there was no redeeming qualities to Wild Bill. Mm. You know what I mean? At all, he's a bit of a jokester, you know. But at the same time, we're never really given a full scope of what exactly Wild Bill did, or any of the inmates for that matter. Now that I think about it. You know what I mean? And we're told actually what every inmate really shown did. Um, the Frenchman, yeah, the Frenchman burnt down a building. I missed that. I totally missed that. Uh, what did the? Uh... And in the book, it's in the book is everyone did it, but also they talked about it a little bit in the movie. I think it's mentioned once or twice, but yeah, the Frenchman burnt down an apartment building mm-hmm. and accidentally killed somebody. Um, while Bill's is shown. Coffees is, of course, framed for Wild Bill. Um, the other one is the yeah. Native American man at the beginning. The first I execution. I, I remember him remember. talking about. He was talking about like how when he was young, he would like hang out with his uh, old lady in the moonlight, and that's pretty much the, the furthest he got into his backstory before he was the first execution. You know what I mean? Can't mm-hmm. remember. I just can't remember what he did. But yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? For Paul and kind of like the end of his story, it kind of shows, like you said, I've been reading the notes here and it shows that Paul was actually 108 years old, which is... 108, okay. And that they were showing that, like, t- to your testament that this was actually happening, Mr. Bojangles was just as alive as Paul was. at the, And that's where he was mm-hmm. going off to go see, was going to go see Mr. Jangles in that little... Uh, cottage or whatever i believe it was yeah and he still did the trick and all that yeah you know what i mean that just goes to show the power of john and how it kind of blessed these two creatures and countless others who whoever he crossed his path before he came to the green mile and like and the part where um John, not John, but Paul's talking about like if he can make a mouse live so long, how long do you think I'm going to be cursed to watch? That's a this secret all into itself. I just want I want Paul to be in the year twenty five twenty five, <laughs> and it's like a it's it's a, it's a, a abandoned wasteland. And he's like walking with Mister Jangles on his shoulder, and he's wearing like a giant Mad Max shoulder pads. Well, speaking of um, Mr. Jangles, that's led to me segue into the actually final scene of the movie where it starts to mm-hmm. black out and go to the credits. You know how it's like showing Mr. Jangles in his little bed? He actually stops breathing and passes. Wow, in that I didn't scene. catch that. That's nutty. So a mouse that should have naturally died many times over. Yeah. Like a year. Lived that for that long. With a natural lifespan, how long is Paul <laughs> going to live? right like 
200, mm-hmm. 300 years old. But his body continues to age. So that could be mm-hmm. a curse all into itself, dude. Do you want to be 300 years old it, trapped in the body of a 300-year-old man? But have them, you know? Or or his body plateau. We don't know. Like, we don't know if like his body plateaued at an yeah. old body. Because, again, he's yeah, pretty dexterous. Yeah, he's running around. He's climbing mountains and stuff. You know what I mean? You know, he's, he's <laughs> climbing trails. Nobody has to worry about. In the rain. He's doing all types of cool stuff. You know what I mean? So that's the film. That's a, the green, the green mile. This is a movie I haven't watched in so many years. Uh, I watched this back when I was a child and it just captured my imagination. Uh, and now watching it again as an adult, so many things that kind of stand out in context and just, I'm at a loss to just to label this movie. Like you said, it's not horror. It's not a drama it's almost like it's fantasy, but it's not, it's, it's, it's like modern fantasy. You know what I mean? Like. It's a potpourri. It's yeah. a little bit of everything and it uses everything. I it like needs. that. I think that's going to be the hook for the show. <laughs> that's that. <laughs> but no, like whenever anyone asks me about my top movies, I go top three, easy. Green Mile, Shawshank Redemption, and I can't. My third one mm-hmm. always kind of rotates depending on like what my mood is. But my top two. So you're you're goes. a Frank Darabont man, dude. Yeah, man. <laughs> is this the timelessness of these? Oh, third one. Um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Okay, I just want to make Willy sure. Walk the, oh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate oh, Factory. My bad. Yeah, Willy Wonka Charlie's because Charlie's the, one the new with, one. My bad. Um, with um, uh, Johnny Depp. No, but Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Just the timelessness of them. You can play these movies you know, a hundred years from now, and they'll still just be as relevant as they are today. Now, I'm just curious. Um, did, have you ever had a chance to watch Frank, uh, Frank Darabont's The Mist? That film? Oh, yeah. I did see The Mist, but that's, it's been such a long time since I've seen it. I uh, vaguely only remember parts That's of another it. one that you can watch a hundred years from now and be like, yeah, that's pretty rough. Um, for this film, since it's your top three of all time, I dare ask, what would you rate it on a scale from zero to five? Uh, zero being complete trash, five, five being solid five. Best things is solid five, huh? I, it's hard not. It's hard to argue that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's hard to pick a movie that just does its subject matter better, has a mm-hmm. more compensative cast that it's so comfortable with. And they're yeah. all comfortable with each other because we've seen what happens when you have people try to act in a movie that don't have chemistry. Like I'd like to point out of the fourth Indiana Jones movie with the crystal skull. Mm-hmm. Yikes. And it's like, I want it to be just a, a part of me wanted to be a contrarian and be like, Oh, 4.5. But it's like, I can't find anything to pick at it against. The casting is immaculate. The storytelling is, is tight. Uh, it keeps you on the edge of your seat without f- making you feel anxiety. You know what I mean? It's like everyone on that everyone on that mile is going to die, but there the movie gives you a sense of hope. Weirdly, in in that these men have atoned for their sins that are going on to the next adventure. Even John Coffey, is, you know what I mean, is begging for death at, towards the end of this film. Not begging, but. Well, he kind of he, he kind of is, and I feel I like yeah. to compare this movie to like kind of like a 
tough southern mother. She'll baby you, she'll take care of you, but she'll whip you when you need it. Exactly. That thank you. That's good. And this movie hits you upside the head every once in a while to remind you of the severity of the situation. But then after that, it kind of lays you back down in a warm bath. You know what I mean? Yeah, for every John Coffey death or Frenchman death, you have the purity of John Coffey watching that movie. You have the interactions with Paul and Coffey or the interactions Mm -hmm. of everyone on the mile when Percy's not there. Yes. And there's there's a blimp in the movie where Percy's just gone for a split second. And everything's kind of, it reminds you how balanced this ecosystem is. You know what I mean? Even with Wild Bill, Wild Bill is kind of, the placeholder for Percy when he's not there, but even he has his own checks and balances, like the whole moon pie scene Mm -hmm. where they just immediately shoot him back into the padded room where he's literally going insane. Mm -hmm. You know, there's checks, there's still checks and balances and it's still enough to keep you, uh, to keep you on your toes. Cause it's like, what's what's, why does he want that moon pie? Why is he just shoving it down his throat? (laughs) Then you're like, Oh, (laughs) that's clever. But then it keep like it doesn't let you stay comfortable. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's the great thing about this movie. Even the scenes with Paul and his wife, they're still they're very sweet and and I forget the actress's name, but she plays that role for the scenes that she does have very well. Mm-hmm. To get into you know chemistry. I mean? She's kind of the chemistry is ex- extremely good. And you could tell that they're a seasoned married couple. You know what I mean? They just feel broke it feels so broken in, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, there's no awkward pauses. Everything kind of flows. And even when he's feeling better and they have their infinite night of, of pleasures, you know what I mean? She's yeah. like, what's up with you? Like something's, this isn't normal. What's wrong with you? You know what I mean? And then he kind of spills the beans about it. Um, it's just the whole movie itself is, like you said, it's kind of like, it's like banana bread, but every once in a while you bite into a walnut. You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> you continue with your banana bread. This movie you know? has something I like to call the three C's of movies: cast, cinema, and cinematography. Well, hey, yes, that, you cast, chemistry, and cinematography. Yeah, and that's what it has. You know, it also has cast, chemistry, and cinematography. Alien. <laughs> in, in much a different sense, it's a much a different sense the way that it invoke things. That's much more cinematography to invoke things, but it has all those. It's really interesting in the way that these three things can be interchanged. Yes, they can. It's it's uh, thirty, sixty, ninety, and then the ten percent is just that lightning in a bottle. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And sometimes, sometimes that ten percent could take a movie that is not that great and make it amazing. Like Die Hard. Mm-hmm. No, I'm just kidding. Die Hard. Don't come at me, fans. Die Hard is amazing. I will not talk about my one of my favorite Christmas movies. Of all time. <laughs> I love that it's a Christmas movie. It makes me so happy. It makes me so happy. I watch it every Christmas, and people wonder why I'm weird. Oh man, this is a great movie. And and to give my score, everybody, I have to echo uh, Brant here. It's a five out of five. It's one. It's one of those movies that you show classes to to teach people how to how to arrange films how good films could be and what kind of lessons they can teach. It's just one of those perfect movies. I can't really find any flaws, nor that I'm looking for them, because the movie just makes you feel good. It keeps you on the edge of your seat, and it teaches you lessons. Uh, so five out of five for me. Absolutely. Uh, where, where can we find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter at KingOfMyths1. And I am be putting together my own little podcast that will be called Nerds with the Oblong Table. Yeah. 
Yeah. Cannot wait for that. Give me a little bit. Give me the elevator pitch for Nerds of the Oblong Table. What's it all about? This so our listeners can get on it once it's ready. Well, it's basically we're going to be talking about nerd culture with a group of people that I can put together. So far, I've only had, I think, one or two. But we're just going to be talking hey. about everything that is relevant to nerds. The first episode that I want to talk about is the do's and do nots of being a GM and a DM. Nice. Interesting. That's some D&D lingo right there, isn't yes. it? DM as for Dungeon Ooh, Master. Spicy. And GM as in Game Master? Yeah, Game Master no? is not oh. strictly for Dungeons & Dragons. That's basically anyone who runs a game in any system. Oh, cool. See, I don't know much about Dun- uh, D&D other than I really want to get into it. And I would love to hear that first episode. It kind of as a precursor to my own uh, infant infancy into dot into sticking my pinky toe into the waters and making my uh my my elf rogue named gargon who has purple hair yes this is my oc don't shame him please that's fine it's fine if you have any questions out of this please just send them my way i've been deeming for 14 years so i have run Sweet. the gambit i cannot wait to hear that my good sir uh and if you like more content like this please let us know on our twitter that is at M Nerdiverse, where we are growing our Nerdiverse by the day. I do daily polls. I ask questions. We all have a good time. There's Punch and Pie, digital Punch and Pie, but Punch and Pie nonetheless. And if you like this <laughs> podcast, um, no matter how you're listening to it, on iTunes, on Stitcher, Spreaker, SoundCloud, YouTube, iHeartRadio, Google Play, please, if you'd like it, like it. If you want to give us some input, comment and as always it'll be great if you subscribe i of course been your host mike g and i will always ask you to look towards the skies towards the skies Introducing the amazing iPhone XS you'll love on T-Mobile, the most loved in wireless. It's the perfect way to stay connected to those you heart most. Fall in love with iPhone XS on T-Mobile. And right now, trade in an eligible iPhone and you'll save $300. Visit a store or call 1-800-T-MOBILE. If you cancel service, remaining balance is due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. $279.99 down plus 30 per month times 24. Full price $999.99. 0% APR for well-qualified buyers plus tax on full price. Allow eight weeks for rebate. Introducing the amazing iPhone XS you'll love on T-Mobile, the most loved in wireless. It's the perfect way to stay connected to those you heart most. Fall in love with iPhone XS on T-Mobile. And right now, trade in an eligible iPhone and you'll save $300. Visit a store or call 1-800-T-MOBILE. If you cancel service, remaining balance is due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. $279.99 down plus 30 per month times 24. Full price $999.99. 0% APR for well-qualified buyers plus tax on full price. Allow eight weeks for rebate.